Hello everyone, welcome back to AV Art Club. Uh, for context, today is Friday, July 22nd, 2022. Thank you again for joining us. Today we have an exciting guest. Uh, we haven't had a guest in a little while, so this will be a very fun episode. We look forward to our conversation. I am Chris Clamp, and as always, I am joined with Lauren Piemont. And today we have a guest uh, that we will allow Lauren to introduce. <laughs> Our guest today just so happens to be my sister, <laughs> and I'm going to let her introduce herself. All right. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Erin. I'm Lauren's little sister. <laughs> um, and do you want me to talk a little bit about my work? Yeah. Just tell us yeah. um, what you're doing right now. So right now I am a doctoral student at UNC Chapel Hill in the English department, English and Comparative Literature. Um, and for context, doctoral student is the earlier phase of the PhD process. And this fall, I will be taking my qualifying exams, which is when they decide whether I can become a doctoral candidate. Okay. Um, I've never understood the progression of that. So you come in as a doctoral student. Um, and that's when you do your coursework and you study for your exams. And then post-exam, you all you have left is your dissertation. And that's what candidacy looks like. Well, how many years have you been in this program so far to now get to this point? I am entering my fifth year. Um, that is a bit of a different timeline from some other programs because we teach the whole time. So it's a bit slower on the front end. Um, so other programs, they do their exams in like the third or fourth years. Um, but after this fifth year, I'll have a couple left and then hopefully I'll be finished. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you've been in school forever, but I love <laughs> it because she's at Chapel Hill, which gives me a chance to visit and relive some memories. Yeah, no, it's been a fun place to be. I mean, I think it's a great place to be a student. Um, but it'll be exciting to move on to the next phase as well. And my work recently took me on a trip to Spain. Yes, which, which is why she's on the podcast. <laughs> and um, also her work in particular is relevant to AV Art Club. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so... I'll just start from the beginning. I went to Spain for the 2022 conference of the Emily Dickinson International Society. It's crazy that they <laughs> have that. All the way to Seville, um, even though Dickinson likely never left Amherst. She might have gone to D.C. one or two times in her life, but she certainly did not go to Seville, Spain. Um, <laughs> but we did. <laughs> it was it was fun. Um and I went there to talk about my work on Dickinson's relationship to painting, and in particular, her relationship to self-portraiture, um, which ties into my larger project in 19th and 20th century American poetry, um, and thinking about how American poets from that time, you know, considered their existence and their presence in their own poetry as, you know, a first-person subject and thinking about whether the models um, that we have from art history about self-portraiture offer ways to explain that sort of subjectivity. Um, 
so I went there with that idea. And Dickinson in particular, Dickinson and Whitman are the two figures that I'm sort of beginning with in my project. Um, and they're particularly interesting because of the sort of icon status that they now have in American poetry, especially moving into the 20th century. Um, there's one authenticated image of Dickinson. You've probably seen it if you've ever seen an American poetry anthology. Yes. Um, and there are a couple famous uh, portraits of Whitman. There were daguerreotypes that were turned into engravings that were then printed um, from before you could reprint photographs, which is interesting. Um, but those images of those two poets really have become icons. Um, in ways that have then influenced um, what we think of as a poet in the 20th century, um, both visually and, you know, as 20th century poets are writing themselves into their work. So that's what I was doing in Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's really fascinating. Uh, Quick question, is this conference an annual conference? And if so, is it always in Seville? It is an annual conference. It is not always in Seville. It is mostly in Amherst. And I think every three or four years, they go somewhere abroad. I think last time they might have been in Ireland. Um, And this time they were in Seville. And I think coming up, they might be going to Taiwan. Um, Wow. Probably won't join for that. (laughs) Um, Is there any reason, like any kind of connection with Spain or Emily Dickinson? Could you explain that? Yeah, so there's recently um, been a lot of desire for better Spanish translations of Dickinson. Um, lately, I'm not sure how lately, but you know, in the past couple decades or so, Dickinson has, you know, garnered a more international readership, um, and the translations are not. I guess they're not up to snuff. She's hard. She would be hard to translate because the way she uses language is so idiosyncratic. Um, and she often uses a word in a sense other than the primary sense that it has. Um, so there's a lot of scholars in Spain who are looking for newer, um, more faithful translations of Dickinson and working um, with her poetry in English. And I think they wanted to host the conference as a way to sort of... Um, energize work that's going on on Dickinson in the Spanish Academy. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is very fascinating. And just for you to expand on it just a tad more, you were presenting there, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, So I was part of a workshop group right before the conference where I sort of had like a, a written version of what I've been working on and shared it with a few people and got some feedback. Um, they call that a critical institute. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it sounds very fancy, and it was great. And then I was also part of a panel um, during the actual conference. The panel was Dickinson and the Arts. So we had a couple people, um, one of whom was a multimedia installation artist. Um, inspired by Dickinson's work and then um, somebody else was talking about Dickinson's relationship to opera so very interdisciplinary it was a it was a fun panel to be on yeah that's really cool so before your thesis had you really done much with art history 
or is this your first dip into it? This is my first dip for sure. Um, I had always been interested in um, the idea of self-portraiture, in particular in poetry, and in literary studies we have lyric theory. Um, We throw the word lyric around often, but it really refers to that act of self-portrayal in the poem. Um, And I always found lyric theory very interesting, but a little bit insufficient for explaining how the first person subject actually works in a poetic context. So I was looking towards art history um, only a couple years ago, actually. I was already a couple years into grad school um, and wondering whether that might be a model for me. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So would you say that Dickinson and Whitman were sort of the first poets to become iconic and sort of celebrity the way that we know artists? Um, certainly in American literature, they weren't as widely read in their time. They really became sort of larger than life, almost mythological figures moving into the 20th century. Um, and they may have had just more influence over that 20th century poetry than Poe or Longfellow or someone like that would have. Okay, so it was part of your argument that like photography helped this? Because with artists, um, you know, there is a point in art history where artists become um, more individualistic and we know their names. Mm-hmm. But with art, you can paint a self-portrait, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and poetry is not a visual medium so yeah yeah I think well in Whitman's case I think photography has a lot to do with it Whitman was obsessed with pictures of himself he loved sitting for photographic portraits and having his picture taken especially later in his life in the sort of 1880s and 90s Um, and he included an image of himself as the sort of frontispiece of his first edition of Leaves of Grass and he included that image instead of including his name. So if you're reading his book, the first edition of it, you saw him, but you never saw his name. Um, okay. So he was really interested in that mode of self-promotion. Uh, Dickinson wasn't. Um, she. There was one picture of her taken when she was about 16 or 17 years old. It's the one you've seen. She looks very uncomfortable. She was very unhappy with that picture, and she never, ever, ever wanted another portrait of herself taken. And as as far as we know, there isn't another portrait of her in existence, at least not uh, now. Um, So she was very resistant to having her picture taken and, you know, appearing like her actual likeness. Um, But... The thing about Dickinson is then because of those idiosyncrasies, because she was always sort of mysterious, and because of the way she used language in ways that sort of um, resist definition, she became the sort of icon of the individual poet. Um, So when we think about, you know, that idea of like individual um, artistry and selfhood, it it often comes from Dickinson. which is interesting because of the self-portraits that she wrote in her poems, where she appears as things she is not. You know, she'll write herself as a ballet dancer. Um, she'll write herself as a wife, 
she was never married she'll write herself as um the northern lights it doesn't even have to be anything human it can be something you know natural or inanimate um but she'll depict herself in ways other than her actual physical self which is interesting Mm -hmm. that is interesting do you have any questions no, I mean, this is just fascinating because as a visual artist, um, you know, obviously I, I read and I'm very much interested in literature and things like that, but I'm, I don't know as much about this field as, as you know, so I, I find this really, really um, cool how these two things are bridging, you know, poetry, literature, and the visual arts and I think it's great what you're what you've been telling us that you're kind of doing with your thesis or whatever you would call this your dissertation in school as well as how this is all bridging together yeah and it it took a while for it all to sort of coalesce in my head I mean I've always been interested in the arts um I didn't seriously study the visual arts in college I took a studio art class and that was about it um but it's always been in my thinking and it's always been on my mind and so it was sort of a happy discovery um when I realized that that was really an integral part of my thinking in terms of my dissertation yeah I think it's great because all those things are always related but Mm -hmm. we don't always present them that way so I love when people make those connections um but going back to Spain, <laughs> can you just tell us more? Like we just we're just dying to know what is Spain like and um, <laughs> what were your experiences there? It was really hot, um, <laughs> really hot. I, there was not a single day when it was under a hundred degrees. Um, the day that I presented, it was one hundred and thirteen degrees in a very gently air-conditioned space (laughs) wow i think that i saw like the day after you you got home that spain is on fire yes it is very much on fire which is which is upsetting but i I can see how that would happen and i was kind of wondering about that we took a train so we spent most of our time in seville which is in the very very south of spain very close to gibraltar in morocco um and we took a train after the conference from Seville back up to Madrid. Um, and the way that you get there is, I believe, through the Sierra Nevadas, sort of. But before you really get up to the mountainy part near Madrid, it's sort of grass-like desert. Not desert, the way we think of it in North America. Um, but very, very dry. Um, not very green. It's The grass is a more yellow color it's beautiful an exceptional landscape and I took like a hundred pictures on a very (laughs) short train ride um but you could see how in that heat with absolutely no moisture that you know disaster could strike it's very very sad yeah but such a beautiful place um and like I said we were mostly in Seville uh, which has a very sort of colonial empire <laughs> history, uh, very important to the Spanish empire. Um, 
a lot of Zuberons and Goyas just mm. in Seville, not in museums. I mean, I'm sure there are some in the museums, but more, you know, in the cathedral and around in the archives and stuff. And just everywhere you look at something beautiful and historic and important. It was truly extraordinary. Yeah, the architecture that I saw in several of the photos you shared, were it's just beautiful. I'm really into a lot of the Spanish Baroque and uh, these ornate cathedrals. And, and I, you sh there was a photo you showed me of the tomb of Christopher Columbus there, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah was he uh, born there or does that have to do with Seville having been the old capital? That's a good question. I'm not sure... Maybe we should look it up. I'm not sure if he was born there. Um, but I know that that region of Spain was very important at the time that he was sort of going off on his explorations. I think when he met uh, Ferdinand and Isabella the first time when he was trying to get funding for his travels, I think he met them in either Granada or Cordoba, um, both of which are very close to Seville. But Seville was the old capital of the empire. Um, so all of the documents pertaining to the, quote, Indies, which that's what they were calling the New World, um, all of that is held in Seville. Wow. I really didn't know that about Seville. I mean, I've heard of people going there, but it didn't occur to me that it was so historically important. Of course, everything in Europe is <laughs> <laughs> and turns out to be a treasure trove of history and art always. So I shouldn't be surprised. Um, but can you talk about where you went after Seville? Yeah, so after Seville, we had the chance to spend about a day and a half in Madrid, um, which is obviously the current capital. And what I didn't realize about Madrid is that it's a newer capital, I think maybe within the last couple hundred years, um, although I'd have to double check that. Um, the old capital of Spain, I think, was Toledo, which is right outside of Madrid. And then the capital of the empire was Seville. But now we know Madrid as the the contemporary modern-day capital. And so we got to go there, and we were overwhelmed um, with all the different things that we could do in Madrid. And we were trying to limit ourselves and just make a couple plans so that we could give proper time to things. And so we spent the morning um, at the Prado. We spent about two and a half hours at the Prado. Well, please take us through that <laughs> entire experience in excruciating detail. <laughs> it was magical and it was overwhelming. It really was. Um, it was crowded. It was a Friday morning and there were a lot of people in there, which was great to see. Um, but I don't know that I've ever been anywhere so dense with things that I wanted to look at and things that I wanted to spend time with. Um, you know, there are museums in the United States that I've spent some time in, and it always seems to me like they have, you know, their things in their collection that they view as the most important. And those things are typically sort of at the end of your path through the museum. You work up to them. But the very first room that we went in in the Prado had a Durer self-portrait. It had um, Gentileschi. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Her stuff was in there. Um, the Bosch wasn't in the first room, but it was very close by. It didn't take us long to get there. Um, and so immediately when you get there, 
it's just things that you want to stop and look at and see for a long, long time. Yeah, the Prado is definitely on my list of museums to visit one day. Uh, so many things in that collection are things that I uh, have known and loved for years. Uh, the Roger Vanderweiden painting of the deposition of Christ is, is just one of my top ten. And, uh, of course, the Hieronymus Bosch, uh, <laughs> Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, tell us, was there something there that really uh, made a huge impact that you were able to see? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was excited to go there. I was trying to identify things that I definitely didn't want to miss, um, you know, in the whole density of the experience. And one of them was... Um, Velasquez's Las Meninas, um, which was upstairs. You did have to work your way up to that. <laughs> um, everything seemed a little bit centered around getting towards those Spanish artists, and in particular, uh, Goya and Velasquez. Um, but downstairs, like I said, pretty quickly we found the Bosch, um, and it, it would have been hard to miss because so many people were crowded around the Garden of Earthly Delights, even though like there was a room full of Bosch. And there's another triptych in that same room. I can't remember the name of it, but I can picture it. It's less colorful. Um, and no one cared about that. <laughs> they weren't interested. They wanted to see uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights because it was so, it was very well lit. It was like off the wall by a few feet, kind of almost in the middle of the room. Is it kind of open so you see the outside of it also? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you could sort of, you could peek around back, but you couldn't like walk behind it. There are like three or four people guarding it from the museum. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make sure no one steps over the little wire barrier and no pictures, none at all. I got a picture of a Durer self-portrait and I got um, scolded for that. That's so interesting <laughs> that there are no pictures because, you know, now that people don't really use flash photography, mm -hmm. it seems like you would be able to take pictures. I thought it was interesting too, and I, I guess they probably do mean flash photography I wonder because so many of the rooms were very dimly lit that yeah, they were museums worried. are very dark yeah to preserve the pigments and things it's mm -hmm. kind of surprising they might have been concerned that if people had their camera on automatic flash then it would mm -hmm. it would come up um but yeah no pictures which makes for an interesting experience I mean in a way it's probably better because you're really taking everything in, but then in another way, I kept forgetting, like, what what did I see? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I take pictures at a museum, I definitely pretty much never, like, look back on them. I mm -hmm. might send them to someone just to show them what I've seen, but that's about it. And yeah. then sometimes I feel, like, this weird anxiety to, like, capture everything in a picture that yeah. I'm not going to look at, and it makes me enjoy the art. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I remember my days working with Gerald Melberg gallery we would do art fairs and it would be kind of frustrating because you would see people come into your booth with their camera phone and literally that's that's how they're looking at the art is just mm -hmm. through their phone and then they'll like snap a picture snap another snap another and then move on they spend however long it takes to take a photograph in front of the painting that that's the only time they're really in front of it and they're looking literally looking at it just through on their screen so i i, I get it i don't know if yeah. the prado has some security 
anything about it or what, but yeah, there's something to be said about that. Certainly. Yeah. And you could see it in other places where pictures were allowed, like, like you're saying, like that's their lens through the place. They're not actually looking at anything. They're looking at it through their iPhone mostly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when I went to the Louvre many, many years ago and saw the Mona Lisa, well, first of all, I couldn't get very close (laughs) because of all the people, but there they were but like also their all their arms were upstretched at the time there was not iphones in your pocket so they had little digital cameras um but yeah they were just like trying to snap their pick and get out and because it was so crowded that's also what i had to do (laughs) yeah and there's like less body awareness i think in those situations when people are looking at their phones the whole time they're not incredibly aware of who's around them and how close to the art they are. <laughs> yeah, and they're trying to, like, kind of edge you out so yeah. they can get the right picture. <laughs> yeah, trying to get a picture without other people in it. Oh, and hopefully <laughs> they aren't trying to take a selfie uh, with it. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing about the art fairs. Like, Chris was talking about, like, usually in the Melberg booth, there's, like, one painting that everyone wants a selfie or a group shot in yeah. front of. Like, maybe it's a Rutenberg or some big, splashy, abstract thing. Yeah. And, like, they'll just come in the booth, get their little picture, and leave. Which, you know, an art fair where your goal is sales is pretty annoying. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I, I did have one more question about the Bosch. Mm-hmm. Did it, well, I guess since it's partially open, partially closed, um, there isn't any sort of glass in front of it? Or is there anything that's just guards? Just guards. Yeah, it's sort of up on a little pedestal. Not very much. The pedestal is maybe like a foot tall. It's much bigger than I expected it Mm. to be. That's the thing about going to museums. This will sound obvious to art people, but (laughs) it's very important to see the true dimensions of a work. Um, But yeah, just a little pedestal and then sort of like a a wire Mm -hmm. thing around it so you couldn't really step right up to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that that painting in particular could be quite offensive to some people Mm. that look upon it and see these visions of of hell with all the demons or whatever um i remember years ago i went to the north carolina museum of art in raleigh and they had a painting by reverend mckendry long uh, who was ben long's grandfather Mm -hmm. and it was this scene of like the last judgment and a security guard told me that 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 they have to have someone near it or something in front of it because people will just hit at it like with their car keys or something because they get offended. Oh my goodness! But it's crazy because like Bosch in particular had has kind of in the twenty and twenty first century become like this symbol of like the alternative art kid, and they mm-hmm. like put them on. Um, doc martens and you know it's kind of <laughs> like you can probably find bosch emblazoned things at like urban outfitters at this point yeah and um you kind of see it as this like rebellious depiction but he was extremely christian mm-hmm. and religious much like mckendry long <laughs> like chris was yeah. talking about um so like it looks offensive and it looks like anti-religion but it's just like a really big warning i guess 
Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. Now I have a lot of thoughts running through my head after uh, what both of you just said. But mm. what's striking to me about it, I mean, he is a very religious uh, figure in art, and it is very important from that regard. And what's striking to me about the Garden of Earthly Delights in particular is that mythology of the new world that's happening in that painting and maybe especially coming from Seville where everything was about you know the quote-unquote discovery and mythologization of the new world with like statues of Columbus and Cortez everywhere you know Mm -hmm. um and thinking about you know how that European perspective was really really instrumental in creating what we think of as the new world today and how you know Bosch's work is a depiction of uh what people at the time thought the new world would be and would offer um so that was really interesting I mean we were thinking about it and we were like this is this is quite a painting of of Florida (laughs) essentially (laughs) you know thinking about the fountain of youth and everything yeah it's a sort of like a semi-paradise semi-hellscape that was to be tamed yeah and that is you know actually extant and you know it exists somewhere out there and there it's you know clearly different in the painting than it is in real life um but it's a it's a real place um that people were thinking about and imagining in terms of you know um heaven and hell and morality and ethics and all that so it's really interesting that is fascinating i'd never put it in that context before but that makes sense and then frightening with uh the sort of right hand panel which i guess is that's really the hell panel right yeah and that's where and i i'm sort of drawing on an art historian here that's where bosch includes a self-portrait oh yeah and the sort of tree man that's figure. Right. Mm-hmm. um i'm referring to the work of joseph leo kerner <laughs> for art historians out there uh cite your source (laughs) who writes about um how self-portraiture is always necessarily oblique and so that's an oblique self-portrait of Bosch I believe Bosch in Dutch right means Mm -hmm. something relating to forest trees um yeah we can fact check that I think that's (laughs) right I think it means forest um so he creates this like half tree half man hybrid in the hell panel and that that's where he inserts himself into the picture and I, I find that very fascinating I have a lot of questions about that I'm not sure what to make of it but yeah is it like a humble like I'm just a mere sinner or is he really that rebellious anti-religious right. symbol that <laughs> everyone thinks he is when they look at that piece yeah yeah it invites a lot of questions one thing that I've also enjoyed about that painting is the left-hand panel, the Garden of Eden, and uh, it, it has God or Jesus, maybe even in this image, and, and there's Adam and Eve, but there's also uh, the devil is in this, and it's hidden, but the devil is, is an owl. It's like dead center in the painting. And uh, it's kind of interesting, instead of using a serpent or, or something else that would be more obvious or traditional an owl was used i would give a lot to stand in front of that 
or as close as I could get, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> well, another painting, well, I know that we still need to talk about Velazquez, but I'm just really, I have a lot of questions. I'm itching to know about this uh, workshop painting of the Mona Lisa that the Prado mm -hmm. has in their collection. Uh, I know that years ago, this painting, it actually had a dark, dark background, and then their conservation lab had done some scans and realized that there was a landscape actually under that. And so a few years ago, they it went through an extensive uh, conservation project, and they removed all the overpainting. So you can now see the landscape, the intended image by whomever painted it. And it, it it's very much like the Mona Lisa. It's just more colorful mm -hmm. uh, because of the the varnish that's on the Mona Lisa and the Louvre has yellowed over time and just it, it can't be removed. It would just create such an uproar if it changed in such a way. But you can kind of see maybe what the painting of the Louvre would have looked like. Uh, anyway, I would love to know, did you see this painting? Uh, what's your thoughts? We did see this painting. It was interesting. Uh, we saw it sometime after we saw the Bosch. And like I said, the Bosch had all this infrastructure around it to let you know if you didn't already know that like, this is one of the things that they want you to see. This is one of the things that they're proudest of. Um, and the Mona Lisa did not have that at all. It was in a room with other things, and it was sort of in the middle of that room. You could see it. Uh, from afar as you were in, like, in a different space in the museum. Um, but it didn't have the same protection. It didn't have any guards. Um, and so in a sense, it didn't have the same aura um, that some of the other pieces had, like the Bosch and like the Velasquez, um, where you already get a sense just by the guards and the wire and everything <laughs> that it's very important. Um, but it was striking to see, and it it seemed to me, I don't know if it really is bigger than the one in the Louvre, but you can certainly get much closer to it. <laughs> so it seems bigger yeah. um, and very, very much brighter in color. But people didn't seem to recognize it, which I thought was strange because it's you can't miss it. It's entirely recognizable. Um, and so uh, Will and I, when we were there, we were able to get pretty close to it. We were able to stand in front of it for a good amount of time without being in other people's way that was the thing about you know to see the Bosch up close you kind of had to wait in a line for people to clear away from the very front mm -hmm. um it wasn't the case with the Mona Lisa which seems strange to me but almost like a very special treat like something that no one else knew about almost yeah I mean it, it is a workshop piece so I guess it's not like solely Leonardo but yeah. my god it's still fabulous <laughs> and um, you know just an old beautiful piece of history yeah. yeah the from what I understand the painting is approximately the same size and whenever it was scanned there's evidence of the spolvero marks uh, in the scan and what that is is whenever uh artist at this time, Da Vinci's workshop artist, for example, they would have taken a, a drawing, which was called a cartoon at the time, and then they would transfer 
the image from this cartoon onto their canvas or panel or wall using a series of, of holes that are poked through this paper and then pouncing it with uh, like a little mm -hmm. bag with charcoal dust in it. So it leaves these, uh, these little dots called the spolvero. And then you essentially can kind of create your drawing. Anyway, right. uh, the two paintings like line up perfectly uh, the mm. Louvre and the Prado painting. So you, the, obviously they came from the same cartoon essentially. Mm -hmm. And I and I saw some video I think on YouTube a year or so ago where they they superimposed both paintings together and you see how they fit, mm -hmm. and um, and then kind of fading out one at a time. You see what the painting and the the Louvre collection may actually look like if it were cleaned. Yeah, and I couldn't remember the exact details when we were there, but I was trying to remember something that I think you had suggested um, about somebody's sketch of the painting at the time. Was it? Uh, Raphael. Raphael, okay. Yeah, there's a Raphael painting of when he had seen the, the Mona Lisa and the um, on the left and right hand of the of the, his drawing there are these columns mm. um, which are very prominent and they are not featured in the Louvre painting necessarily and there, that's why there's always been these uh, these stories these beliefs that maybe the the Mona Lisa and the Louvre is not the original or at least not the only one and there's this painting in the Prado yeah. which shows a little evidence of the columns um, from what I understand. And then there's this other painting that's in like a, like a large consortium collection that's maybe in some storage facility in Switzerland somewhere, but does have the, um, the uh, columns and, and the, the model looks younger also. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. But it was it was funny. I mean, the way that it just wasn't recognized the same way other works in that in that museum were. But like you could see it from afar, and you kind of did a little double take. Like, is that what I think it is? Um, yeah. Like that's an image I've seen everywhere. And like you were talking earlier about things being printed on like Doc Martens and sold in Urban <laughs> Outfitters, like how many t-shirts with the Mona Lisa have we seen? Oh, yeah. And back to like iconography too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's crazy how ubiquitous that image is. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. Did it have a label on the wall? Or I guess you could tell us at the Prado about their didactics and stuff like that also. Were they in English? But um, did this painting have a label? Did it say workshop or... Uh, did it have a name like Baltrofio or one of his students? Oh my goodness. I have to say, I don't quite remember. It had a label and I, I believe it said something about the workshop. Um, whatever text it had was very minimal. Um, as it was with most of the paintings in there, the, the wall text was pretty, pretty brief. Um, like you ought to already know about this. Yeah. <laughs> and then they give you this nice like handy guide, which is not so much a guide as a, coffee table book yeah she's got this like <laughs> two inch thick prado guide that they got with their tickets i'm sure i'm sure they go into more detail in there um 
but and that was another thing that I was thinking about as I was thinking about uh, the lack of photography. The rooms were so full. And I don't, I mean, it's been a while since I've been to the Louvre, and I've only been to the Louvre to sort of skip in and out, glance at the Mona Lisa, the Last Supper, and then kind of leave. Um, but I don't remember any of the rooms being that full. So it's a bit of an overload. And, oh, sorry, is it um, big like the Louvre? Like in the Louvre, the rooms are like palatial no pun intended um (laughs) but yeah is it like more intimate the galleries much more intimate and what's interesting is that the building that the Prado is in was always a museum okay um so in the Louvre you know it used to be a palace uh Tuileries palace right yeah Tuileries I think and so you have these huge hallways that are beautiful in their own right and then massive gallery spaces that you can imagine were like you know basically party rooms yeah like the hallways are like as wide as our whole house (laughs) yeah and just like massive massive but this was always intended to be a museum and there really aren't hallways to speak of there are sort of galleries that are a little bit longer than others and take you to other galleries but um everything is art in the Prado, everything, mm-hmm. everywhere you look. And I remember we were, we had already been there for a couple of hours and we hadn't even gotten to the Velasquez yet. And we were thinking like, we probably need to hurry up, but we don't want to. And so we were sort of rushing through this one hallway slash gallery and Will just turned to me and he was like, these are all Rubens by the way, <laughs> but we had to keep going. Her <laughs> filler is Rubens. Yeah. <laughs> or like Titian or something like that. Um, and so it was really hard not to stop and look at everything because there was no resting place ever. Everywhere you looked, you were like, oh, that's, you know, a chance in a lifetime to see that. Yeah, because I guess American museums don't really have a lot of art, like in the hallways and stuff. Like you're kind of moving between galleries and some galleries mm-hmm. are connected, but I'm just thinking like of MoMA and the Met, like they're yeah. pretty spare. It was more like that. It was more like that. And then you'd get to like a staircase or something and that would be pretty small and you'd sort of hurry up the stairs to get to the next thing. But yeah. yeah. Well, I guess tell us about the Velasquez. Yeah. So we made it through the first floor very slowly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, like I said, there's they're sort of hitting you with huge massive important things from the start but they are leading you up towards the Spanish collection in many ways um first through the Goya um and then finally to the Velasquez which is on the second floor and then there are some things on the third floor that unfortunately we did not see because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was getting late in the day um but they do lead you up to the Velasquez and it's just it's very striking and everything is Almost everything is quite religious in nature, very powerful religious imagery. Um, You know, especially on the first floor with, um, I'm forgetting the artist, but the image, Chris, that you were talking about before we started. The The Van der Weyden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of similar things, um, you know, depictions of the Assumption and things like that. Mm. Um, 
and then leading you up to the Goya, which is a little bit darker, <laughs> a little um, perhaps more emotional in some ways. Uh, but it's all it's all about some higher institution. Um, you know, a lot of it is about the Spanish monarchy, which is so intertwined with the Catholic Church. Um, so it's all about something that's much bigger than you until it seems you sort of get led to the Velasquez and in particular Las Meninas, which was another one that was hard to get close to. Mm -hmm. Um, But what struck me about that painting is it truly is massive, so much bigger than I ever imagined it. Um, And earlier I was trying to figure out, is it roughly the same dimensions as the canvas that's actually in the painting, Mm -hmm. Um, which does tower over all the figures in the painting. But what's striking about that and overwhelming is that you know you get to that painting and everyone's staring at you and Mm. you know in a much more overwhelming way just because of the size of it and the size of the room that it's in it's in one of the bigger uh rooms especially like height wise in the entire museum um but it's tricking you into thinking that it's about you and that's something that uh Foucault writes about (laughs) Um, in his opening essay in The Order of Things. Um, the idea that all these figures are looking at you is what Foucault calls a feint. It's one of the sort of ruses of the painting. Mm. Um, and so in a sense, you come to realize that everything you've seen was always about you. It was always painted with you and your viewership in mind until you notice the mirror in the back of that painting and realize you know, at the same time that it was always about you, it was never about you. It was always about the higher institution and the sort of king and queen that are being painted um, within the actual Velasquez painting. Um, So that sort of doubleness of, like, thinking that you're being drawn in and then realizing, no, it's still not, you know, you're still not the subject of this. Um, It's a really overwhelming emotional experience I found yeah I mean that's kind of like life itself is that way right yeah (laughs) so it's pretty incredible um a single painting can capture that whole phenomenon and human experience and I think especially because of where it is in the museum you know like if you think about the arrangement of these things they know everything that you've seen to get there Mm -hmm. um and all the powerful imagery that you've been trying to take in (laughs) as best you can before you get to that which is very clearly their sort of pride and joy of the collection Mm -hmm. i think um it's reprinted on a lot of the promotional materials (laughs) and some of the guides uh and everything um but yeah i found it hard to look at honestly and it was essentially why I was there. It's a very interesting painting for me in particular because of the self-portrait that's within it. Um, but I did find it difficult to look at for an extended period of time. I had to sort of look at it briefly and then walk away. And then you can see it from the other side of multiple archways when you're looking at other Velasquez and Goya and it's sort of following you around. And so you take another glance at it, and then you're like, oh, it's too much. I've got to go look at something else. Mm-hmm. So it kind of has this spirit, but probably mm-hmm. its scale makes it a little more invasive. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think something that one of my professors once said that 
I sort of laughed at at first and I've been thinking about more now is like a third of the painting is ceiling. Oh, yeah. Um, and he pointed that out as something that people don't often talk about. And I, I didn't quite know what you could say about that. But it's important to the perspective, I think. And it's it's important to the room that it's in almost. Not that it was painted for that, but maybe that they took that into account as they were, you know, choosing where to display it. It's it's meant to make you feel quite small, um, like you're looking up at these figures that are then staring at you, you know, uncompromisingly. Yeah, it's also kind of how we experience interiors. Like when mm-hmm. you're standing up, you're not really <laughs> seeing like straight into a room. You yeah, know? you're kind of, and you're certainly not looking down. <laughs> <laughs> no, and not not significantly and it's not like a cropped snapshot you know like a family portrait kind of thing it's like Mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah yeah and just magical to finally see and I think you know just in terms again of my own work not to keep going back to that but it really raises attention to the impossibility of the self-portrait um, you know, if you think back to the Bosch self-portrait that I was alluding to in the Garden of Earthly Delights, that's an obviously impossible <laughs> self-portrait. It's not even of him. It's this figure that he sort of creates out of, you know, multiple entities. And it's not immediately recognizable as a self-portrait. But, you know, this painting in particular really problematizes the idea of reflection. You know, we think that we would be the subject that all these figures are staring out at but that can't be true you know from within the painting you see the logic by which that can't be true when you see the mirror and the king and queen standing in the back and then you think like you know along similar lines to the Vermeer allegory of painting like how would an image like this even be painted Mm. you know like how could you get that vantage point unless they really were looking in a mirror which we know that you know they couldn't have been so yeah the self-portrait is kind of an impossible proposition in many ways that is nevertheless achieved <laughs> yeah or said to be achieved yeah. I it makes me think of existentialist philosophy and mm-hmm. the impossibility of understanding one another which I always enjoyed thinking about <laughs> yeah yeah one other bit of information is really interesting about Las Meninas that um, is still kind of part of the self-portrait is the painting of Velazquez, his self-portrait in this. There's a red cross on his vest or jacket, and it's the symbol of the Order of the Santiago. And Mm -hmm. uh, apparently at the time this painting was completed, he was not a member of this order, um, but he later was um, admitted into this group. So an idea is that he added this at a later date, the symbol or, or something. It's kind of uh, another mystery of the painting. Yeah, yeah, and it goes with a larger idea of self-portraiture as a way to sort of paint a certain version of the self into being. A self that doesn't actually exist preceding the painting, but is created in the painting. 
Yeah, like, was he manifesting being in the <laughs> order of the Santiago, or did he just edit it later? Like, Yeah, yeah, and it, it could be that angle of sort of almost self-promotion, like, going back to the Whitman idea of mm-hmm. just wanting so many images of himself. And, you know, if you think about, like, the true subject of this painting, and it's something that Foucault sort of performs in his essay, and he gets to it at the very end. The true subject of the painting is the king and queen that we see in the mirror. But, you know, in reality, it's Velasquez. And so he's sort of raising himself and, you know, by proxy painting itself to that higher level that in previous works, you know, throughout the museum, like Christ would have held or other kings would have held. Mm-hmm. Um so it's really a painting about painting, which is just so mystifying to see, um, like, you know, late in a museum that's so dense and so packed full of important and overwhelming and impactful things, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> and then how many art movements and paintings long after that became solely about painting yeah it's like did this open the door to that probably subconsciously if at all but it's interesting yeah i think absolutely um and another thing to raise not to talk about foucault too much i know that i don't mind annoying (laughs) i enjoy foucault Um, but one thing he points out and the reason he's particularly interested in this painting is to understand the identity of the figures within tells you nothing about how the painting actually works, you know, spatially and geometrically. Like, it doesn't help you to know that, like, oh, that's the Infanta Margarita right in the middle, or that's, um, gosh, who is it? Now I'm forgetting. Is it someone the fourth? Philip the fourth? Charles the fourth? I think it was Philip. Philip? I think it, that sounds right. Felipe. Um, but it doesn't help you to know who all these people are as you're sort of trying to parse the way everything's working out spatially. Um, and so Foucault's using it as this reference point to track a paradigm shift when language stopped being representational and had this more attenuated relationship to you know, the things that we use language to describe. Um, It's a complicated argument that I'm trying to summarize very succinctly, and I'm sure I'm getting it a little bit wrong. But it's interesting to think about, you know, like, what's being signified is not the point of the painting. Yeah, and it makes me think of things like van der Weyden and, you know, Descent from the Cross. And you've got, like, as many figures in there, if not more, as Las Meninas. But you know who they all are Mm -hmm. and what role they play. And they they repeat over and over and this is sort of like he's using that same uh strategy but the figures don't matter which i don't know it's kind of interesting to me at least i've never thought of that until right now it's absolutely interesting and there are so many i mean there are so many figures that repeat in all the um religious works throughout and like the one that really stuck with me at the time was so many depictions of saint jerome um, and you know him by, Will was teaching me about this. <laughs> I didn't know all this going in. Um, you know him by his figure. He's, I think he was an ascetic, so he's very thin. Um, 
usually depicted as old and you also know him by the hat that he has um and so you know different artists different situations different settings but you can always tell this is a picture of saint jerome and you can understand what it is that you're supposed to be getting from that but this is as you're saying this is not participating in that same sort of archetype forming um it's a painting about painting yeah even though at first glance you're like oh let me like decode these people yeah and you're like oh i can't (laughs) yeah or you can and it just doesn't even matter that much although i guess you can it's just they're like sort of mere mortals or whatever yeah it's just it's not it doesn't help you gain a greater understanding of the painting although the one figure i can't remember i might have read something about it the one figure Mm -hmm. is the guy going up the stairs in the back Mm-hmm. He's sort of turned around, um, looking at everybody. I'm not sure who that is. Um, I don't know. I'm sure someone's written about it. <laughs> oh, it's Jose Nieto Velasquez, the Queen's Chamberlain during the 1650s and head of the Royal Tapestry Works, who may have been a relative of the artist. Okay. Nieto is shown standing, but in pause. Uh, we know that. Yeah. And then an art critic notes it's uncertain whether he's coming or going. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a mystery, too. And <laughs> I mean, was Velasquez's cousin like, put me in your painting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like the ambiguity is important, and especially that idea of you're not sure whether he's going up the stairs or coming down the stairs is he entering is he leaving and who is he looking at when he's looking out of the whole scene um yeah yeah the work really thrives on that line of questioning um which i i found really powerful and i think it's another thing that foucault says you know we are the subject of the painting insofar as we occupy the same position as the true subject of the painting. Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of a privileged position that all painting gives to us, right? We get to stand in front of it. Um, and we get, you know, tricked into believing it's for us, it's about us. Um, yeah. And of course it never is. <laughs> I mean, it's not, but it is... Um, meant to communicate with us, to register with us, yeah. even if it's trying to tell you something yeah. that's not about you. Yeah. It has to connect with you first, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just reading a little bit about this guy on Wikipedia, uh, there is a small part that says, in the footnotes, of Joel Snyder's article, the author recognizes that Nieto is the queen's attendant and was required to be at hand to open and close doors for her. Snyder suggests that Nieto appears in the doorway so that the king and queen might depart. In the context of the painting, Snyder argues that the scene is the end of the royal couple sitting for Velazquez and they are preparing to exit, explaining that is why the Menina to the right of the Infanta begins to curtsy. Oh, okay. Well, we don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's just one possibility. That's so interesting. Yeah, because another thing, another question that I've come across when reading about it is, has the painting begun? Is he in the middle of it? Or is it being concluded? Is he just putting that final touch on it? But, mm-hmm. I mean, that would suggest that it is towards the end, but... I don't know. I almost want to keep that question open. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris has pulled up a like a zoomed-in um, section of Velasquez, and it like to me, his eyes are kind of looking like past the canvas, like he's mm-hmm. still, you know, painting. And maybe if he was done, he'd be like making eye contact, like all done. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. But you know, who knows? Or even looking at the canvas itself, mm-hmm, not like, even out. Yeah, because he's yeah. kind of looking like the way you would look at your sitter or whatever. Right, and it, it looks like he's about to look right back at the surface. Yeah, like on. his eyes are going to do that flitting back and forth. Yeah, because yeah. they're kind of off to the side. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast <laughs> series on this painting. <laughs> it's extraordinary, it really is. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to tell us about Spain or? <laughs> I have another question. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So j- this might be a nice little tangent, but I, the Velasquez painting we've been discussing has been copied or has influenced many other artists through mm-hmm. our history. One of my favorites is a painting that John Singer Sargent uh, painted that's in the Boston MFA collection. Mm. But Pablo Picasso has also painted several versions mm-hmm. of Las Meninas. And there's a very, very important painting of Picasso in Spain. Did you see this painting? Yes. Guernica. Guernica. We did see. It's not in the Prado. <laughs> Where is it? It's in the uh, Maria Luisa Museum, which is a little bit down the road from the Prado. Um I would describe it more as like the MoMA of Madrid. <laughs> okay. Um, mainly early 20th century things, I think. A lot of um, political posters and things of that nature from, you know, the the period in which Spain was a republic in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that, a lot of uh, Dali, a good amount of Dali in wow. there. Um Granica, of course. Uh, some Juan Gris is in there. Mm, you know, the nice. famous Good one of cubism. the... Um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but you know, the bottle. Yeah. Um, which may have been something that Gertrude Stein was thinking about in her poetry when she writes about... Um, she has this weird poem. It begins, a carafe that is a blind glass. <laughs> you can't think about what that means for a long <laughs> time, but people associate it with that one Juan Gris image. Yeah. Um, so fascinating. But yeah, the Guernica, that was, we went there after, well, no one has dinner in Spain until like 10 p.m. <laughs> we had like fake American dinner at about seven and then we went over there at eight. They were open until nine. Um, so we got to go there in the evening, which was also kind of a great time to be filtering around looking at art as the sun was yeah. thinking about setting. I want to do an <laughs> evening museum run. <laughs> it was really great. Um, and there was another one with really tight security, um, a whole crowd of people. You know, right when you entered the museum, after you got through security, it was just 
signs pointing you specifically towards that one painting to guernica yeah okay so that was different the prado wanted you to sort of weave your way around and then stumble upon what it is that they wanted you to stumble upon Mm -hmm. but at the maria luisa they they knew that people would be coming in to see that one painting and so they made it really simple (laughs) to get there (laughs) which we did because they were closing in about 45 minutes and we wanted to make sure to see it and then we sort of wandered our way back down Mm. through other things um but yeah that was it's interesting to think about that i i think picasso was a supporter of the republic in general um and then everything in the prado was part of a royal collection Mm mm-hmm um so you know you get those two sides of that political debate you know politics are always sort of on the front end of things at least everything that we saw in Spain and when we first arrived in Madrid there was a crowd of Franco supporters (laughs) sort of blocking our way to the hotel (laughs) and so you know that tension between the relatively recently reinstated monarchy and that Republican period is really um, top of mind, which is really fascinating. Yeah, well, obviously that time had a huge influence on um, even Americans, uh, mm-hmm. members of the New York school, like Robert Motherwell, for example, made an entire series of elegies to the Spanish Republic. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I personally don't know very much about that, um, but clearly the Spanish Civil War was a huge thing, I, I guess. Yeah. what Did it go, was it between World War One and Two? is that? I think so. I think it was mainly in the 30s, although, again, I'd have to fact check that. Um, it might have gone right up until the sort of start of World War II, um, which... Spain just didn't play the same role in as other um, Western European countries. But it's it's a huge part of the American artistic mythology. I mean, Hemingway, you know, he was he was a supporter of the Republic. Yeah. So much of what he wrote had to do with Spanish culture. Um, the metaphors that he made out of the bullfighting tradition are extraordinarily um, intricate. Yeah, well, I feel like I should do some research on that topic since so many of the things I love are literally about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, I don't know, I I haven't done much traveling, but I just got the sense when you're in Spain, you're always steeped in their history. That's not necessarily true, at least in the United States. You're not always steeped in our history wherever you go around here. Well, definitely not. Um, but <laughs> any history. Um, but even in France, like, yeah, you're steeped in their history. But I don't know. Maybe France is so much more uh, <laughs> mainstream, for lack of a better word. You know, like prevalent, like French culture, mm-hmm. baguettes and bakeries. That it just, like, doesn't feel as, like... Um, enveloping or something because it's like you already have a sense of it before you get there maybe absolutely yeah and I think especially coming from an American tradition you know like 
France has always captured a particular spot in our imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, probably because you know we've been so closely allied with them historically in ways that Spain was, you know, in major 20th century conflicts, Spain was doing its own thing. Um, kind of. That's true. That's true. Plane in some senses. Um, but yeah, French culture. It, it's always it's always floating around um and so it doesn't feel as um foreign for lack of a better term to us yeah but yeah very interesting well i mean one thing i've been over here trying to to look up and see if i could find an image of is there's a paint one of my favorite painters is a Spanish artist named Antonio Lopez Garcia. He's a mm-hmm. uh, a realist that's just a hero to many realist painters such as myself. Anyway, he's done a series of paintings of this very important intersection in Madrid called the Gran Via and um, uh, these paintings of his are just huge and I, I don't know why but for some reason I want to say I had like um, read or heard years ago that like there are footprints on um, where he stood when he did these paintings of the Gran Via and uh, anyway if if I were to go to Spain I, it would be kind of one of those things where I'm like oh I have to stand in that spot where mm-hmm. Antonio Lopez uh, stood when he made these paintings he, he was like a magic realist early on and then it He's he's done so many things, um, but anyway, that's that's an image yeah. there of the Grand Via. Looking, at, I don't think we saw that. There was so much that we didn't see in Madrid. Sadly, we just kept saying we'll have to come back. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to go back but. now. <laughs> well, is there anything else that we you would like to share with us, or you want to ask Lauren? Um, I think I'm good. Is there anything else you want us to know? I think I'm good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, yeah, (laughs) this has been a really great conversation. I, I honestly feel like it's one of our best yet. So thank you so much for coming on the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah. We'll have to have you back for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. And, um, Yeah. It was great to have a guest again, and uh, what a what a good guest, great conversation. So everyone, thanks for listening. Um, again, please follow us on uh, Instagram at AV Art Club. And Lauren, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Lauren Piemont on Instagram, and also leave a rating and review for this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Excellent. And I'm on Instagram at Chris Clamp Art and website is chrisclampart.com. And um, Aaron, do you want to promote yourself <laughs> in any way? I'm on Rate My Professor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, cool. So thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.